welcome to The Unveiling with your hosts, Ajay, Mark, and Tim. Three guys discussing the one true gospel. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. Let's dive right in. Hi, everybody. This is Tim with me as usual, Mark and Ajay. We're back together in the studios, actually for the first time in a while. Um, Pulling back the curtain a little bit, this is our first recording of 2022. And uh, we are, I say we haven't been together for a while, but my uh, direct message counter says that we have been communicating an awful lot despite being far away from each other. But it's good to see you guys. We can see each other on the screens as we're recording. So it's good to be back together and to see you guys. Good to see you, Tim. Good to see you both. Hope you guys had a great Christmas. I had to pause there and make a most. It's good to see you, Tim. I know they're both trying to shield their eyes. Anyway, <laughs> um, so here we are. We're getting together today. This is going to be episode number three in our debunking Christian myths series, uh, or we've subtitled that "Things I Used to Know." Um, and today, I think we're going to be talking about a very specific passage that gets taught a lot. And um, really, I've I've not always understood it, and I think that uh, I think I have I think we have a better handle on it now under grace, and I think that uh, we'd like to try and impart that. So let me start off by giving us that passage. It is uh, one John one eight uh, through ten, and it says, "If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins." He is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. That's very, very, uh, I want to say condemning almost. And uh, it's one of those things that I always was taught. Hey, if you don't keep confessing your sins, look, it says right here, (laughs) you know, you don't have any uh, the truth isn't in you and things like that. And, and it's always been kind of a verse that I took very personally and very worriedly. And now under grace, I don't take it that way, but don't take it from me. Let me uh, pitch this over to Mark. Why, you know, what is it now? What does it mean now? Well, I'll give you a little background on this. The way this came up to me first was a very good old friend of mine who's a pastor and I, one night we're sitting out, we used to have what were called boys nights out where we get together and smoke a couple cigars and sit around the fire and just talk about the gospel. And he is an excellent gospel preacher, really understands the message of God's grace. And somehow this scripture came up. And when he said it, in my spirit, I was just troubled. And we started to talk about it. And what I realized is, is that from this whole thing, you'll find out, is that a lot of times the things we believe aren't based on Scripture. There are things that have been handed down tradition. We've heard pastors and preachers and small group leaders just say them. And we just take them in as like, oh, well, that must be truth. And then as we progress and grow in our relationship with Christ and our understanding of him, Uh, by spending a lot of time contemplating him, um, we start to see things come up here and there that we just took for granted. Things I used to know, as you said, Tim. We used to know this, but what was the knowledge based on is the question. Was it based on 
really getting into scripture and contemplating whether this could be part of the gospel, whether it's true or not. So we got into a little discussion about whether believers need to confess their sin or not. And my first thing I came back with him was, it just doesn't seem logical to me. And I said to him, so you're telling me that if I don't confess every sin, that my sin has not, that sin has not been forgiven and I have not been purified from right, right unrighteousness. And I said to him, first of all, we don't know. As we go through each day, our lives are busy and we get under stress at times and get short with our temper. And we just don't know every sin we confess every day. So what about those sins that I was impervious to? I'm still in that sin because I haven't confessed it. Does that seem logical to you, I said? And he said, no, I got to admit that really doesn't seem logical. And, uh, and I said, and what about just plain forgetting them? You know, I might have realized at the time I was sinning, but by the time I got alone in my car, came to the end of the day, I just don't remember every mistake I made every day. So now I'm still in that sin. I'm still in that transgression because I haven't said it out loud to God. To me, that's just not logical. He actually agreed with that. And then the second thing would be a question that kind of naturally stems out of that is then, okay, if I believe I need to confess every sin, how often do I need to do it? Is it just one a day? once a day, I get them all off my chest, just do my best. I might not remember half of them or know the other half, but I'm going to at the end of it, or is it after every hour? Is it after every minute? Is it right there when I do them? Is it at the next communion service at my church? Do I have to go to a Catholic priest and confess them? Otherwise, I'm just walking around most of my Christian life in my sin because they haven't been confessed. So what do you guys think about those points? Yeah, Mark, you know, you made an excellent point about using logic, right, to say, you know, why this doesn't make sense. But like we always do, you know, along with logic, we also always support what we say with scriptures. So for me, you know, the biggest problem with this kind of uh, theology is that, you know, it has a limited view of the cross and it makes little of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. In fact, you know, the scripture says, because of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has forgiven us of all our sins. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's not we will get forgiven, but we have forgiven, right? If we have something, we won't get it, we have it. And in Colossians 1.14, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, we have the forgiveness of sins. And in Colossians 2.13, it says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all your trespasses. So if all our sins are forgiven, how many are left to be forgiven, right? So Lord Jesus Christ has finished the work and he's a propitiation for our sins. And Lord is the God, God the Father is perfectly satisfied with his work and he has forgiven us of all our sins. I'm the, uh, I just I want to ask a question because not all of us speak Christianese. And that is, you use the word propitiation. It's a great word. What is propitiation for everyone's understanding? 
even mine, just to make sure I'm right. Yeah, Tim, thanks for asking that. Propitiation means like, if you go look at the Greek word, it's actually the translation for mercy seat. There are two things. So mercy seat in the Old Testament, right? So the blood has to be sprinkled on the mercy seat for the uh, sins to be forgiven. So what it means is like, you know, unless the blood is sprinkled, our sins still remain on us. So propitiation means it's the Old Testament mercy seat, which means, you know, God is completely satisfied with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a meaning of mercy seat. And it also means like propitiation also means complete satisfaction. So God the Father is completely satisfied with the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. And I agree with you, Ajay, that this this so-called doctrine really just calls into question the sufficiency of the cross. It's like saying to Christ when he his final statement was, it is finished, and he breathed his last and died for us. It's like saying, well, yeah, it is finished, Lord, but I still need to confess every sin that I did today. And then you, where does the list end? You need, you can add X, Y, and Z. You need to give 10%. You need to read a chapter of the Bible. You know, it's just, it just, it calls into question the sufficiency of the cross and really makes little of what Christ did, that it wasn't enough, it's saying. So I think that was a great point, Ajay. And I also said, what I love how you went from the fact that I came with a, a kind of an argument of logic, saying how, how could this be true logically, and you brought the scripture in to support it. One of the things I love about scripture is how much it works in Congress with logic. They're not opposed to each other. In fact, when you use logic and, and the very gift of reasoning you've been given, the Bible says that's where we experience transformation. It's when we contemplate the Lord's glory, when we renew our minds in what the truth is. And if anything, what this uh, podcast hopes to be about, it's to get people to contemplate the Lord's glory, to get into Scripture with us on their own, with other Christians, and really find out for themselves, because that's really where the transformation comes. And it's, I got to tell you, for the three of us, it's one of our biggest, if not biggest, joy in life is getting into Scripture, and God just blows us away as he shows us more and more of Christ, more and more of his perfect plan, of his love for us, and not just for believers. It all goes back to for God so loved the world. As you get deeper and deeper into that, your life just becomes joy-filled. So sorry for carrying on so much there. But... Yeah, so Mark, talking about logic and scriptures together, you know, the Christ finished work is so finished that he put away our sins so completely that God our Father says that, you know, he remembers our sins no more. You know, that is the main clause of the new covenant. It's in Hebrews chapter 8 as well as in Hebrews chapter 10 where the Lord says, you know, this is a new covenant I'm going to make with you, right? I'll put my laws within you. And he says, I will remember your sins no more. Again, coming back to logic, right? If the if God is not remembering our sins anymore, why do we need to bring up sins every time, you know, when we sin? Or why would you even want to, you know, <laughs> much less need to? It's like, you know, I always use that analogy. If you borrow your dad's car and you wreck it, and he's very gracious to you and forgives you uh, every day for the rest of your life. Are you going to keep confessing that I wrecked your car, you know, <laughs> and try to get him mad again? No, it doesn't make sense, does it? 
So I love your point about the finished work of the cross being finished, just that. And that kind of flows into the next point I wanted to make that we've talked about some on this uh, podcast before. It's been a little bit of a running theme. Uh, And that is that Christians no longer sin. Now, whenever I say that, all the red flags are going up out there. And I know my friend Tim will be about to <laughs> chime in here. And so what we're not saying is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep Tim quiet here by answering before he gets a chance. But what we're not saying is that Christians don't sin on the horizontal plane against each other. What we're saying that our sin is no longer counted as transgression against God. So when I'm going to back this up and... Um, with a couple of quick scriptures here. Romans 5 says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. And then it says in Romans 6 that, 6 that you are not under the law, but under grace. So using logic, we're so told if, that if we're not under law, our sins aren't a transgression against God. And then in Romans 6, Paul tells us, you are not under law, you are under grace. Okay, and then Romans 4 says, where there's no law, there is no transgression. The promise comes by faith, and it is by grace. And then finally, it's Hebrews 8, 12, Hebrews 10, 17, Hebrews 31, 34, all, all back up what Ajay said, uh, that their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. So Mark, I, I don't appreciate your take stealing my thunder and, and stifling my argumentative I knew attitude. you'd still have more to say, Tim. That's all. So take it away. <laughs> no, no, no. I, exactly. Everything you said, I agree with completely. And I just, the only thing I could add to it was the actual definition of sin is missing the mark. It means not being able to be, to live up to perfection. And when we're covered by Christ, God no longer sees us, but sees Christ and that Christ is perfect, and that covers for us. Now, we still miss the mark, especially amongst each other. We can still hurt other people, and there are times we have to go to them and say, you know what, I screwed up and messed up with you. I'm sorry, because that's how we keep our earthly relationships alive. But God but God said, when I forgive you, I forgive you all your sins, as you've explained, and that meant yesterday is today is and tomorrow's. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is uh, one more scripture that uh, comes to my mind in the same chapter, Mark, Romans chapter 4. Actually, uh, Paul quoting David says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, right? So blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That means like when we sin, you know, that sin is not accounted on us or towards us because, you know, it was already put on our Lord Jesus Christ and it was accounted on the cross and he already paid the payment for our sins. So by no means we are saying that, you know, okay, now that your sins are forgiven, you go out and sin like crazy. We are not saying that. But the thing is, you know, in fact, the Bible says when you actually know when your sins are forgiven, you are free to not to sin. So that is, again, counterintuitive, but the power comes from knowing that um, our sins are forgiven. And in fact, the Lord Jesus also told the woman caught in adultery, 
he first gave her the gift of no condemnation neither do i condemn you go and sin no more and then he said after that for those who have been forgiven much love much yeah so being out from under the law out from under sin and being in freedom it does not lead to sin to doing more sin because i'm no longer transgressing against god it leads to love it leads to being transformed see that's one of the major fears that people that believe this kind of doctrine they're afraid hey if we get out from under that burden of sin we're just going to go hog wild. And as my pastor's wife used to say, my old pastor's wife at the end of the service, that people that are afraid of the message of God's grace think that when we leave church here, we're all going to stop at a liquor store and knock it off on the way home. <laughs> it's like, that's not what freedom in Christ leads to. In fact, it says that it's not until we become free from the law that sin loses its dominion over us. Because the law actually arouses sin in us. It's not grace that arouses sin. It's law that does. Let me just finish up that, uh, that last point. The whole point we're making on this point that we are no longer transgressing against God is that if my sin's been completely washed away as far as the east is from the west, if God remembers my sins and lawless acts no more, why in the world what I need to confess every sin I do every day. I wouldn't. And, and what I would like to say also that um, Tim and I talked about this earlier, that there are in the whole, and I, I, I um, encourage all of you to get into your concordances, your computer Bibles, and look up, look up the word confess your sins. You're going to find it three times in the entire New Testament. The first time is John the Baptist, who was the last Old Covenant prophet, okay? So he's not preaching the gospel because it hasn't happened yet. And he was preaching a repentance for the, for the remission, confession of sin. Then the other one is what Tim said, and that is that we confess our sins to one another because we're not able to remember our friends' and family's sins no more. So it's healthy for us to confess when we mess up and hurt somebody, to forgive them, to ask for forgiveness. Um, and uh, so like anytime we have any discussion, we're not trying to be mean spirit and say, oh, all these pastors, you know, they're preaching this false, you know, teaching here. We're just trying to encourage people to look at the reasons they believe things and try to back them up and really study it and, f and come to a conclusion on that. I just think this has been handed down to people as a tradition and we've just kind of taken people's word for it. But when we weigh it against scripture and against logic, it really makes no sense. So you guys want to put something in here so it's not just me talking? Because I get paid by the word. No, no, no. You're doing good, Mark. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so then, so this conversation I kept mentioning was going on with my pastor friend of me at the fire. After we talked some of this stuff through, he said, well, he said, this isn't about losing your salvation. When John is saying that unless you confess your sins and uh, are purified from all unrighteousness, you're not going to lose your salvation. This is just about the quality of your relationship, your closeness of fellowship and communion with God, which 
I would say, once again, that kind of defies logic to some extent. First of all, look at what the scripture says. Nowhere in that scripture, Tim read at the beginning, 1 John 1.8, does it mention anything about the quality of relationship. It's talking about if you're still in your sin, if you have not been justified by your righteousness, you are still accountable for your sin. You are without hope and without God in the world. You're still in your sin. It's not, a, it's not just a little bit, oh, I'm in my sin and unrighteousness, so I'm not as close to God. To me, that's just very illogical. What do you guys think about that? I, I want to say uh, both of those arguments, the, the idea that we can lose our salvation to me is, it kind of blows my mind. It's not like there's an angel in heaven going back and forth between the book of life with a pen and an eraser. Take, putting our names in, oops, he didn't confess this in, taking our names out, putting our names in, taking it out. It's, that's, that's ridiculous. And, and the, the idea of uh, losing my fellowship, Christ, dwell, the Holy Spirit dwells in me. He's in me. I couldn't get much closer if I tried. He, I can't separate from that. I don't, don't want to, but I, can, I don't think it's possible to pry it out with a crowbar. So I, I just find both of those ideas distasteful. <laughs> And I think my friend, if I if I asked him on the point, most of us have heard preachers preach, which is absolutely true. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you yes, less. He would agree with that. Well, wait a minute. That's the opposite of what you're saying the scripture says. You're saying that there is something we can do to make God us God love us less, and that's not confess every single sin we do every day. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah, in fact, you know, I want to make one more more basic point about this or more fundamental. You know, confession is not only not necessary, but uh, to begin with, you know, confession will not get you the forgiveness. Because the Bible says in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 9, I believe it's in uh, verse 14, it says like, or 9.22, it says, according to the law, all the sins have to, so all the sins have to be cleansed by blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. So if you really think about it, right, when we sinned, or when we sin against God, Blood has to be shed. A mere confession will not get you the forgiveness. So the blood has to be shed. So what we are saying is, you know, every time you sin, Christ has to come down and die again on the cross. Until then, you know, your sins won't be forgiven. So again, you know, without understanding the truth of how the forgiveness works, you know, we have come up with this new theology, right? You know, where you sin, when you sin, you just confess and your sins will be forgiven. But to begin with, you know, this confession of sins is, does not even meet the requirements of forgiveness. So when we understand this, right, you know, we are making an assumption that, you know, somehow this confession will bring us a forgiveness. But to begin with, it doesn't even, blood has to be shed for forgiveness. Just mere confession is not enough. So when you think about that, right, this whole doctrine to begin with, you know, the validity or the authenticity of the doctrine is questionable, you know, when you compare it against the scriptures. And when we realize that confession alone is not enough, you know, we don't even have to talk about all the other things, whether we lose fellowship or whether we lose salvation, 
we don't even have to go there because to begin with just confessing will not even get you forgiveness according to the scriptures you know that's a really good point of even those people who seem to try and want to live under the law or still only pick and choose those portions of the law that you know that they want to follow it's if the bible says the remission of sin requires shed blood and you're saying changing that to oh no you just need to confess well you're you're breaking the law right there you either take the whole law or none of the law because it's just you know it's said in the bible that if you break one sin then you're guilty of all of them and i'm probably misquoting the heck out of that off the top of my head but uh, you can't either have to take the whole law or none of it. And I really want to be under none of it with grace. Yep. And bounce, bouncing off of what Ajay just said about that confession in itself does nothing, but blood has to be shed. Uh, he's kind of referring to Hebrews chapter nine, where they are looking back to Israel's sacrificing of animals for sin, which scripture tells us was just a shadow of the realities and good things to come when Christ came. Hebrews 9 says, He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? That To me, that just says it all right there. Christ died once for all. And there are I would also encourage our listeners, go into your concordances or on your computer and type in once for all. And you're going to find close to a dozen scriptures that say Christ died once for all. When he died, he didn't just die for the for the sins that you did before you were a Christian. He knew every sin you'd commit in your entire life. He died for them all. So if he already died for these sins, why would I be confessing them in 1 John 1, 8? So that's just a, a proof that I really love. And um, I think we can probably move on here. And I just want to I just want to cap this kind of I don't like to use the word argument, but uh, just uh, diving into this, delving into it. Uh, Paul writes about. So if our sin could somehow affect our relationship with God, our closeness, our fellowship, then what Paul writes in Romans 8.35 would be completely wrong. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We probably Amen. could have, we probably could have just started with that one and saved 40 minutes here. <laughs> once you once you come to the love of God in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross has been applied to you, you've been given his spirit as a seal of ownership and a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. There's nothing you can do to remove yourself from his love. 
in distance or in quality, because you've got it all. And I just love how Paul says, after naming like a dozen different circumstances that can't affect your relationship, he says, I better put this in, nor anything else in all creation. I love that because that that like covers any other argument someone might, yeah. might bring up. So that means not confessing our sins cannot separate us from the love Absolutely. of God. Yeah, that falls under anything else. <laughs> yeah, in all of creation. So, so uh, let's let's con- why don't you conclude this for us, uh, Ajay? Yeah. So you know, one other point you know I just want to make is, um, you know, this kind of uh, theology, right? Also, kind of goes against the testimony of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter uh, ten, again uh, from verse fourteen. It says, you know, by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And it goes on to say, wherefore, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he has said before, this is a covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and their minds. I will write them. And after saying that, the scripture says their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And now where the remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So the Bible clearly says, you know, where the remission of sins is, there's no more offering. So this confession is also a form of offering, you know, we are bringing and saying, you know, God forgive me not because of Christ's finished work, but also because of my confession. But the Holy Spirit clearly says, that, you know, where the remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. And one other thing is, you know, among the believers, we seem to think, you know, whenever we are convicted of sin, we think that the Holy Spirit is doing that. In fact, it's not the Holy Spirit that's convicting us, but it's actually our own conscience. When we sin, you know, our conscience is given to convict us of our sins. But, you know, in fact, the Holy Spirit is not convicting believers of our sins, but of our righteousness. If you go to John chapter 16 and uh, verse 8, it says, you know, when he is come, Lord Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit is saying, when he is come, he will reprove us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me and of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. So here clearly it's saying that, you know, he will convict the believers because he's referring to believers, you see me no more. And he will convict us not of our uh, sins, but of our righteousness. And this is actually, you know, further confirmed by the scriptures that we just read. Holy Spirit himself is testifying that I will remember your sins no more. And for God to tell us, I will remember your sins no more, and then turn around and convict us of our sins, it makes no sense. That makes God a liar. So either God has forgotten our sins or he's reminding us of our sins. You can't say both things. But the Bible clearly says, I will remember your sins no more. So the only thing that God has to convict us of is righteousness. So he is convicting us of our righteousness constantly. Even when we sin, the Holy Spirit is telling us, hey, that sin is washed away by the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. And you are still righteous in my eyes. You know, when we understand this and then when we change our minds regarding this, right, that's a whole way of responding to sin. You know, when we sin, 
we are so thankful and we are able to get up immediately and walk again with the lord without having to go through this ritual of confessing and then going out of fellowship and coming back in fellowship we don't have to do all or any of that we simply recognize the finished work of lord jesus christ and we simply thank god and then walk in the newness of life even you know when we sin knowing that you know the blood of christ is continually cleansing us so i would like, like to say you know yeah go ahead mark you were going no, to finish something. your thought finish your thought yeah. go ahead and finish no i was going to move on to like you know the next topic but if you have anything to oh okay yeah let me let me comment on one word that i think is really a rub, where the rubber hits the road word and you said it's not god or christ it's not the holy spirit who's convicting of sin ourselves of sin it's our consciences and that's why so many Christians walk around with heavy loads of guilt and condemnation. Those aren't from God. They're not from Christ. They're not from the Holy Spirit in you. That's your conscience. And, uh, and that's why I love the scripture in Hebrews 9. He says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death? Christ hasn't just cleansed us from, from, uh, from the, what's the word, uh, reaping what we've sown as far as sin. He's cleansed our consciences. His desire is for our consciences to be clean. The only way they're not clean is if we keep convicting ourselves. And that's something that, you know, I think we've all three shared before that we spent many years as Christians walking around with our own self-inflicted condemnation, and and guilt, which is a terrible way to live. It's just a, it's it's really it's really bad, and that's that's why we're so thankful for the message of God's grace, the one true gospel, that it came into our lives and took away that burden of slavery, as Paul would call it. Yeah, we talked about it before as well. But you know, when we feel guilty after sinning, we have a tendency to repeat the sin. So it's so important to for our conscience to be cleansed of that guilty conscience. You know, when we understand that, you know, God is not holding our sins against us, you know, our conscience is also, you know, cleansed. And when we have a clean conscience, right, you know, we are actually, our tendency to repeat the sin goes down. There is power in not sinning. Again, you know, lest that our believers misunderstand that, you know, we are telling people to go and sin. All the truths that we are talking about, in fact, empower you not to sin. Absolutely. And that's such a key point you made, because those that are afraid to come into the light of the true gospel, which Scripture over and over and over again tells us is the message of God's grace. And I could spend another hour just giving you scriptures that back that up, which I won't. I'm getting a big head shake from Tim. <laughs> but but um, it's just so key that people understand that the one true gospel, the glorious gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've seen perfectly in the cross and in the resurrection, that does not lead to sin. That's another slap in the face of Christ to say that his perfect gospel, the gospel of God, leads to licentiousness, a license to sin. Absolutely 180 degrees wrong. That leads to transformation and love. It leads to us being becoming children of God. 
and just walking in the riches of his glorious inheritance. So that's not even an argument that anybody should worry about. So I think we've done a really good job of taking these three verses and explaining what we used to believe and why we don't believe that anymore in the way that we did. So that leads to a really big question. This is a this is a set of verses that has caused issues, caused argument, caused divisiveness. It is not terribly clear on the surface. Why would why would he write this? Why would John write this in the first place if it's not the way we think it's supposed to be? That's really the question that's at the crux of this whole discussion. So, Mark, all right, we, we, you, you, know, you guys have really laid out a good argument scripturally and logically why this can't be true. Then why, if, if uh, the Bible is the inerrant word of God, why would John say something so wrong? And uh, I'll explain it by saying that uh, famed theologian R.C. Sproul, recently I heard him teaching, and he said that when you're reading Scripture, you always hold up what you're reading to three questions. One is, who's writing this? Two, who's it being written to? And three, what is their purpose? On what occasion did they write this? When you do that and you get that to that second question, who's it being written to? The clouds part and you understand. It's because this is not being written to believers. Now, the key is context, as always. Uh, the scripture that, that Tim read for us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. You've got to look before and after. So here's what it says, starting at 1 John 1, 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So first of all, what was the message they heard from Christ? It's the gospel that he came to die for people. So he's giving a message here to people that need to hear this message. Do believers need to hear this message? They've already heard the message and have put their faith in Christ. And here's the message. He says, we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It is absolutely clear from John's language that he is speaking to unbelievers. And look at the, some of the, uh, the adjectives and adverbs he uses. He says, people who walk in darkness, who lie, who do not have the truth in them, nor live it out. People who claim to be without sin, people who deceive themselves, make God out to be a liar and do not have his word. Those aren't, that, that's, that's not a good description of believers, of those that have put their faith in Christ. Darkness and light, life and death, lies and truth, those are all opposites of having faith in Christ or rejection of Christ. So it's very, very clear from the language that John here is writing to unbelievers. And scripture is clear that before we come to the realization that we need a Savior, 
we need to understand that we need a savior, that we have not perfectly upheld the law, nor can we do it, and that we have sin. We, if we don't acknowledge that, we're not going to acknowledge our need for a savior, and we're going to stay on our unbelief. Yeah, Mark, you know, you already mentioned this in one of your adjectives, but uh, I think it's worth calling out again in uh, John chapter 1, verse, sorry, 1 John 1, verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So none of the believers ever say, I have not sinned, right? So it's clear that it is talking about unbelievers. And to further prove that, right, if you go to chapter 2, then the, his salutation and his tone, everything totally changes. He starts off with, my dear children, right? I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, just after two more verses, right, when addressing believers, he says the same thing. My dear children, I tell you not to sin. But if you sin, hey, I just told you, you confess and get forgiveness. He's not saying that. He is saying that if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You know, just we talked about, right? You know, you look to Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's the advocate and he's the righteous one. And as he is, so are we in this world. That's what the Bible says. So when you sin, you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and understand that, you know, that sin is already forgiven and that sin is already atoned for. And he is the propitiation, the perfect satisfaction to God the Father. And as he is righteous, we are also righteous. And Romans 5.17 says, right, you know, through the gift of righteousness, we will reign in life. So when we understand that, you know, Lord is not imputing sins to us, and even when we sin, we are the righteousness of God in Christ, we will actually reign in life. So it really pulls up again that as Christians, God doesn't hold us accountable for the things that we do wrong because we are still going to do some things wrong, but it's no longer condemning us. And that's, I'd rather much, I'd much rather be called uh, dear children than not have the truth in me. <laughs> so, yeah. Can I just add one, one final thing here? Let's just say someone's out there now and they're like, you know what? I'm not, I don't know if I buy yet that the whole explanation of this is that John was speaking to unbelievers, not believers. Well, even if you, if you take that argument out and you look at all the scriptures we've brought and you don't know what the answer why John wrote that is, you still are just have to be blown away by the preponderance of the evidence. And we just only brought a handful of scriptures. If we wanted to, as I mentioned before, there are hundreds of scriptures that show that what John was saying can't be true for believers. So just keep that in mind. And that's why I would encourage every listener to make sure they have their own Bible. Uh, you can, If you can hear us, you're obviously able to get online. There are dozens of resources online where you can read scripture directly uh, if you don't have a paper copy. Test, test what we're saying. Go look for yourself. Find a concordance and, you know, work around, nibble around the edges of the words that we've used. Make sure that you're not just listening to somebody, whether that's us or 
this preacher or that preacher or whomever. But listen to God, listen to the word directly yourself. And I think that you will find over time that uh, you're going to find answers that way. And I would hope that they jive with ours. And if not, oh, we always encourage you to communicate with us. If you think that something we've said isn't quite exactly right, or you have questions or disagreements, we would appreciate your contacting us. You can get our contact information in the at the end of this uh, podcast in the outro, and uh, we encourage it, and we'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you very much for a wonderful night. This has been a great discussion. I've enjoyed this tremendously. I have too, Tim. Thank you. All right. Till the next time. We would like to thank you for listening to The Unveiling. We hope you have enjoyed it enough to consider subscribing and sharing with others. We welcome your questions, comments, and feedback. You can reach us via email at theunveiledgospel at yahoo.com or find our Facebook page at The Unveiling Podcast. For IJ, Mark, and myself, God bless, and we will talk with you next time.